Hey everybody, this is Optimus. Thanks for listening to the Retro Futurist Culture Podcast, part of the Ruminations Radio Network. Today we're going to do a very special episode. We're going to be talking about one of my all-time favorite films, the 1988 classic They Live, directed by John Carpenter, starring Rowdy Rowdy Piper and Keith David. And with us today we have the amazing, the illustrious, the quite good at MK11, Mr. Warlock. How are you doing, Warlock? I'm fantastic. And that's, uh, yeah. Thank you for that intro. <laughs> thank you for kicking my butt on MK11 on a weekly basis. It's a good time. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. We can do Anytime. it more than once a week if you want. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We, yeah, that might be a good idea. Um, so uh, we're here to talk about They Live, directed by John Carpenter. And um, Warlock, what, what's one thing that just, really grabs your attention about they live uh the first thing and the i i love the monochromatic like black and white like put on the sunglasses uh moments of the film with all of the propaganda kind of messages that kind of imagery has ever since i saw it the first time has stuck with me and remains like my favorite part of the movie yeah i uh I didn't quite understand all of that going on on uh, the level that it is thematically that I do now. When I first saw the film as a youngster, I think I was in high school when I first saw it, uh, maybe junior high, but uh, now I do. And, and it's really powerful. Um, I think one of my favorite bits is, is the first line uh, after the main character who's played by Roddy Roddy Piper, Nada comes in and he's got a shotgun in hand. And this is after he's discovered that the world we're living in isn't quite the world we're living in. And he says, I have come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubble gum. <laughs> that line I was just like, as a kid, I was yes. like, that's, that's insane. Um, recently a line that, that really hits me hard and, and it's even, makes the film even more relevant now in our current Western economy is uh, Keith David's character, Frank. He says the whole yeah. deal is like some kind of crazy game. They put you at the starting line. The name of the game is make it through life. Only everyone's out for themselves and looking to do you in at the same time. Okay, man, here we are. You do what you can, but remember I'm going to do my mess to blow your ass away. So how are you going to make it? Uh, and then that kind of explains the U S economy in a nutshell right now. It's kind of scary. Um, but before we get into too many more spoilers, which this is spoilerific, folks, this we're way past moratorium on spoilers for a movie from 1988. So if you haven't seen <laughs> it and you don't want spoilers, go watch it now. There is an excellent uh, Shout Factory Blu-ray and 4K out. I have the Blu-ray. Did you get the 4K, Warlock, or did you just get the Blu-ray? I do. I have that uh, Shout Factory one you're mentioning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I picked it up when it first dropped on Blu-ray, I think in 2015. And I think the 4K just came out this last year. But I believe it's from the same source because I believe they did a 4K scan when they released the Blu-ray itself. Um, I did an upgrade to 4K because I was like, yeah. <laughs> um, so the story, we start the movie, and this is a little bit of interesting trivia that I picked up somewhere else. But we see a homeless drifter credited as Nada. Uh, and you see him get off a train and he's in Los Angeles searching for a job. And there's a lot of shots of him just walking around. And I guess John Carpenter composed music for this film. One of the interesting things is he composed it after the film was done and he had put it together and he's watching it without music. And he composed the baseline to Rowdy Rowdy Piper's walking strut of his character that doom, 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 doom. And that's based on his walking beat. Hi. That's and awesome. I never heard that. That's great. Yeah. He finds kind of a, he finds employment at a construction site after he's turned down at a job hunting site. And uh, he runs into a guy, Frank, that's played by Keith David, who offers him that he can stay at a shanty town named Justiceville, which is quite a metaphor we'll get into later. And at night, they're just hanging out and they're watching TV. And there's like a hacker that takes over the television broadcasts, telling them that they're, there are people that are trying to take over our world and keeping us in a dreamlike state, keeping us asleep. We need to shut off this signal. Nada notices across the street there's quite a commotion. 
he follows Gilbert, who's another one of the main characters, and the preacher into a nearby church. And they're having a meeting, including the hacker that he just saw on the TV. And he sees uh, scientific equipment, cardboard boxes. They need some strong people to help them. Nada hears him saying and he's discovered by the blind preacher. And then he runs out. And later that night, the cops show up. There's a helicopter and the cops show up. And, and Nada's pretty sure he knows what's going on. And they assault Justiceville. And uh, it's kind of a pre-Rodney King kind of. It's almost like he predicted it. These cops are like beating the crap out of that preacher guy. And um, Nada escapes. And he uh, goes back the next day and finds one of the boxes from the church. And it has a pair of sunglasses in it. Or there's a box full of sunglasses. He takes one pair with him and he hides the rest in a trash can. And this is like what you were talking about earlier. He puts on the sunglasses and he sees the ground for a second. He takes them off. He puts them back on. He looks up and suddenly he can see the world. He can see these subliminal messages that are brainwashing everybody. And it's like a very stark black and white world. And the messages say, obey. And when he looks at certain people, they don't look like humans. They are some type of alien with a skull-like face. And then this is one of my favorite scenes. He goes into a supermarket or like a corner store and there's a woman and she runs into him and she says oh excuse me and she's kind of like a hoity-toity snotty woman <laughs> and he looks at her and he said and he says you you look like your head found the cheese dip in 1957 <laughs> she says what <laughs> and, he, and he takes off the glasses and he looks at another one he's like you you're fine put the glasses on i look at her formaldehyde face <laughs> it's just one of those lines that just like kills me and then uh the woman rats him out with her she's wearing like a, a watch it's like a dick tracy thing or even like an apple watch nowadays but she says i have one that can see and she rats him out and he gets uh he gets confronted by cops in the confrontation he kills them he kills the cops because they're both of these creatures that he can see with the glasses he takes her shotgun and that's where he goes into the to the bank says i've come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass i'm all out of bubble gum he only shoots the aliens with the shotgun and he escapes into a parking garage and this is where we meet another one of the main characters of the story holly thompson he holds her at gunpoint and she drives him away in her bmw uh, to her house she works for cable 54 um he tries to get her to put on the glasses she won't do it um he's kind of disoriented from wearing the glasses it kind of gives him a headache she uses that to her advantage and she takes a large glass bottle possibly of wine hits him over the head knocks him out a window and he slides down and this is up like up in the hollywood hills of california the next day after he's woken up he returns to the alley where he hid the sunglasses and uh, he tries to find frank to show him and frank says you're crazy and nada tells him to put on the glasses and uh, frank wants nothing to do with him and this is one of the pivotal points in the movie where they get into this amazingly long and violent five minute six minute brawl <laughs> between yeah i think it's close to seven nada and seven frank minutes. and uh it's it's quite the quite the street fight it has aspects of wrestling boxing just like brawling it's probably the closest to a real fight you've seen although some of those moves in a real fight would probably hurt so bad you wouldn't get back up <laughs> um, <laughs> for sure finally nada gets frank to put on the glasses and frank can see and now now obviously he believes and he you know he's like how long have they been here not as like, I don't know. And another great line when they, after the fight and they beat each other up, Frank goes and they rent a hotel room and Frank's like, where are they from? And Nada says, well, they're not from Cleveland. <laughs> and I don't know why these one lines in that movie are just so great. There's a, there's another, that scene has another good one liner that always gets a chuckle out of me is when they both, they both take off their sunglasses and you see their black eyed, like swollen jaws, like all this stuff. And, uh, yeah, Nada just says, ain't love grand. Grand, yeah. There's, there's so many good one-liners in this movie. Let's see. And then uh, they, uh, they, Gilbert sees them at the hotel. They run into him, and he tells them that there's uh, going to be a meeting. They go and uh, 
to the meeting place and and they there's a guy with a shotgun outside and he's like hey friends there's something new going down he points to his eyes and they come in and uh there's a woman who was from the um justiceville soup kitchen and she gives them contact lenses that they can wear and she says it's it's easier on your eyes it doesn't uh, disturb you as much and uh the aliens have been using the earth and global warming to make to make the planet like their own depleting earth's resources and they're bribing humans to sell out their own kind and promoting them to positions of power and then holly shows up in the meeting and uh you know because they're trying to figure out where's the signal coming from and they're like we don't know we think it's a cable and she says no no the signal's clear here and then the police attack and uh they get into a gunfight this goes on for a little while down an alleyway and uh when they were at the meeting, one of the members gave Frank a watch that the aliens has and says there's some kind of special teleporter. During the gunfight, Frank kind of triggers that thing and it opens a hole in the ground. They jump down in it and they end up in a secret like subtunnel system of the city that leads them back to Cable 54. Most of the resistance is killed except for Nada and Frank and they decide to take on these aliens by, by themselves. But they're going to finish what everybody started. And uh, they're rampaging through the through the broadcast center, and and they run into uh, one of the homeless from the beginning of the movie, who's sold everybody out, and he's taking them on a tour. He they lead him on to thinking they're part of this group of people that have sold out the humans, and uh, then they kill a bunch of the aliens in the TV station area of Cable Fifty Four, and they run into Holly, and they're like, "Come on, they're going to blow the signal tower on top." And as they're running up the staircases and fighting the aliens who look like humans, who are using tech, interesting enough, I don't know if you caught this, the, the communicators that the aliens are using look quite a lot like the uh, Ghostbuster. Uh, uh, I'm glad I wasn't the only one. I'm like, that's totally <laughs> what was that thing? The, the, the PKE, the PKE meter yeah. from Ghostbuster to, to detect parakinetic or, yeah. Activity. I don't know if that's just like a prop they had lying around. They're like, hey, let's use these. Uh, but anyway, they before they get to the roof, as not as leading the charge, Holly comes behind with a gun and she shoots Frank in the head. And uh, not as on the roof, and he says, Holly, Frank, are you clear? And Holly says, I'm clear. And he not a turns around, and you can see he did such a for somebody who was not an actor. I'm going to air quote this actor. Roddy Roddy Piper did such a good job. I don't know if it was the direction from John Carpenter. I don't know if it was just him just being more natural. He really fit the role, but you can see the look on his face that that he can't believe that she sold them out, that she's one of them too. And she says, you can't win. There's nothing you can do. And uh, the aliens are there with aliens dressed up as humans and cops are there in helicopters. And they're like, put down your weapon. And he drops, he sets down the gun and, you know, Holly's trying to get him. She's like, just come with me. And we see him pull out. He's got a smaller, like two or three shot gun, really tiny pistol, probably 22. And uh, he sneaks that out and he shoots Holly. And then he turns around and he says, fuck it. And he shoots, <laughs> he shoots the transmitter device. <laughs> and at that point, the uh, aliens, of course, shoot him and he falls to the ground he gives the aliens the middle finger as he dies, which is like one of the greatest movie deaths of all time. I don't know if there's anything better. Um, and then this is like, this is like <laughs> the best part of the, one of the best parts of the movie is the transmitters destroyed and humans all over the world are seeing the aliens. Like I love the very next scene is like a broadcast and the people in the booth are like, oh, I don't remember what the alien reporter's name is. He's like, you look like shit. And she's like, what, what are you saying? And then like all of a sudden people are just seeing, and then like, the part that I literally lost it when I first saw the movie is the very end, this woman's having sex with the guy and she looks at the TV and she's seeing these aliens. And then she looks down and she's screwing one of the aliens and he says, Hey, what's wrong, baby. And that's literally boom. The movie ends right there. And then it starts running the credits. It's just amazing. Um, so good. Uh, yeah, I agree that that end sequence of, yeah, the newscasters, the uh, the alien at the bar watching the news as everyone <laughs> and then he's like, bedroom uh, thing is is just so good. Yeah. And uh, I guess if you watch any of the behind the scenes or anything, um, originally 
John Carpenter had hired a couple of people to be the aliens in the movie, but they had a hard time with the makeup or they didn't fit. And it ended up being Jeff Imada, the stunt coordinator who's worked with Carpenter on a bunch of movies, played every single alien, whether they were male or female, except <laughs> maybe in the group scenes, but all in the, in the individual scenes, that was the case. What's, uh, What's, what was the first time you saw this movie or what can you remember? What are your first impressions ever? Like, tell me your story of how you discovered they live and, and we'll go from there for that. Sure. So I don't think I can quite pinpoint exactly when I saw it. I think I was maybe in junior high or, uh, you know, first year of high school or something. Um, but, uh, we had all of Carpenter's stuff at home. My brother and my father have this vast collection of VHS tapes when I was growing up. I'm talking like drawers and drawers of them complete with a catalog to find whatever you were looking for. Um, And I remember they were having me run through his stuff like Big Trouble in Little China and Escape from New York and stuff like that. And I remember at some point my dad was discussing uh, fights in movies and he mentioned that he thought you know, they live had what he considered to be like the best on screen street fight that had been put on film and that I should see it. Um, and then of course I was like, okay, you know, let me add that to the list or whatever. So I of course then watched it and fell in love with it. Um, from there. And I think it was like, um, whenever I did see it, of course, you know, it's this fun alien invasion movie at its core. Um, and, the uh, the themes really work, too, because I think I saw it just when I was getting into like punk rock and heavy metal. And uh, <laughs> I had this like streak of like, oh, yeah, I don't like authority either. So like watching this movie that was filled with um, this kind of what you could call now, like conspiracy theory, kind of alien uh, stuff where we're fighting the man and the powers that be are blinding us and simultaneously killing the planet and killing humanity and all for the sake of money and greed. Uh, it felt very real to me and like something that I thought was just like a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of like one of those like style and substance things that I really love about like retro future stuff or stories like this. Um, but yeah, even rewatching it over the years still, I still have just as much fun. And I mean, hell, like you were saying, some of the themes now seem just as appropriate today as, 1988 yeah i uh i saw it it was probably early 1990s either either on vhs or cable i can't remember which first either way i ended up buying a vhs tape at like i think it was like one of the used places that had used movies and uh it had been on my list that i wanted to own um it really drew me in with the story i was a huge wrestling fan as a kid you know, I'm a little younger than you, so I grew up like during that era of WrestleMania and and Rowdy Piper and like when They Live came out, I think I was like 11 in the theater, but uh, I don't think I saw it till maybe I was 13, 14, something like that. Um, when I f- first saw the movie, just something about the story drew me in about these aliens taking over the world. I didn't understand the metaphor at the time but just the simple plot kept me going and i i thought the story was great the fight scene was just when you're a kid just like holy cow it's like the craziest fight i've ever seen and i mean the thing that makes the movie still so fun to watch is it's just really really well there's not a there's not a gratuitous shot in that movie there's not any wasted minutes like even just the scenes the opening scenes of the street it's building you up scene by scene and then the score with that baseline dun, 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 dun. it's taking you to the next beat of the movie he doesn't waste any time um and it's almost in like perfect three because the movie's about 93 minutes it's almost in three exact 30 minute blocks act one act two Act three. It's kind of crazy. It's one of the probably best structured films I've watched because I only really noticed this recently how well structured the film is, how it goes in those beats and how it builds up to the crescendo of the story. And then that was amazing. And then, like, I had uh, loved Big Trouble in Little China and Halloween. So it was just a, definitely a, a thing that I was going to love. They live. And 
even more so kind of get into more of John Carpenter's work, but we'll save that for more episodes. Um, one of the things that's uh, interesting, the film was based on uh, two things. Uh, there, there's an original short story called eight o'clock in the morning. It was like a seven page short story. And uh, that was written by Ray Nelson is originally published in magazine of fantasy and science fiction, 1963. Um, very similar to invasion of the body snatchers, except in, in the original story, the character is uh, hypnotized and when he becomes unhypnotized, he see the aliens for what they are. And they're not like humanoid aliens like we have in the movie. They're kind of like these weird, grotesque blob things with eyes and arms. And they're just kind of goofy looking a little bit. At least that's oh, that's how they're drawn in the comic book adaptation. That came later. <laughs> comic book adaptation came out oh, later gotcha. called Nada from Eclipse Comics. Um, that was done by, where's my notes here? Bill Ray. Uh, alien encounters comic anthology 1986 i think that's what the john carpenter saw first was the comic book version and then he tracked down the original story he bought the rights to both to uh draft the screenplay and carpenter decided that instead of hypnotism he would use the sunglasses as the the key to unlocking the uh story it's funny because he wrote the screenplay but in the movie the screenplay is credited to frank armitage which is a reference to H.P. Lovecraft stuff from the Dunwich Horror, which was very cool. You can you can tell Carpenter's a fan of Lovecraft because oh, yeah. this isn't this isn't his only movie that has Lovecraft themes in it. That would also be the thing, uh, Prince of Darkness, Mouth of Madness. Those all have very Lovecraft style uh, themes. Yeah, and then uh, you know there was a unique casting deciding to cast a not a, not a traditional actor. We get Roddy Roddy Piper, who is a wrestler, uh, I guess John Carpenter met him at WrestleMania in 1987, and he had kind of written the screenplay, and he was looking for an everyman, and he thought that Roddy Roddy Piper would fit perfectly for the part, and I guess Roddy Roddy Piper at the time was in World Wrestling Federation, is what it was called at the time, now it's World Wrestling Entertainment, and he, when he told Vince McMahon who was the president of world wrestling, Vince McMahon tried to buy uh, Rowdy Rowdy Piper off saying, no, 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 don't work with John Carpenter. I'm going to start my own movie company and I'll pay you the same. Well, Rowdy Rowdy Piper couldn't turn down working with John Carpenter because John Carpenter had, you know, a reputation as a great filmmaker. So he did. And at first Vince McMahon was not happy and kind of put Piper on like a crap list for wrestling, but the movie did really good. The fans loved it, and they loved Roddy Roddy Piper, so he kind of had to let that go. And interestingly enough, Vince McMahon's first produced movie was No Holds Barred with Hulk Hogan, and that was a flop. So <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> Roddy Roddy Piper definitely made the better decision for this movie. What did What did you think about him in the movie? Oh yeah, I was. I just wanted to chime in. Does isn't that a weird parallel to They Live? Kind of anyway, like this person's going to do something that, uh, you know, goes against the grain. And it's like, let me just offer you some money to not do it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> buy trying to buy him off. Yeah. But, uh, as far as, yeah. Uh, Roddy Piper's performance, I think it's, it is good. Like for what it is, like you're saying, like there's a few for someone who wasn't like, uh, yeah, like classical actor or whatever. Although, you know, the wrestling, uh, guys and gals, they're, they're acting their ass They're, off all the time. Right, they are um, actors for sure. Yeah, uh, but I think, yeah, you see it, like, he does a really good job um, doing a lot of nonverbal stuff, too. Like, the scenes when the police raid happens at the, uh, like, the homeless town, kind of shanty town thing, mm -hmm. when he's walking around in that initial scene where he first puts on the glasses and all the kind of emotive stuff he's doing there. Um, at the end, you say, uh, like you said, with the betrayal and stuff, like, he... And at the same time, he's able to kind of flex that pro wrestler kind of stuff with the one liners and some of the other stuff. Like, I think all of it just kind of mixes really well to make to make that character come alive um, to service the film, which I think is really great. Right. And then you have uh, Keith David as Frank, and this is his second time working with John Carpenter. His first time was in The Thing. And 
Although as much as I liked him in the thing, I feel like his character in They Live is like the backbone of the movie. He's such a voice. Like he's the other voice that's like, man, don't don't mess with that. Don't do this. And then when he's woken up, he's like, how do we stop these people? <laughs> like, And he's just, uh, yeah. he plays a good uh, yin to Roddy Piper's character, not as Yang um, for the first half of the movie. And, uh, you know, they, they pair really well together. And I guess for the fight scenes, like basically Keith David helped Rowdy with acting and Rowdy Roddy Piper helped Keith David with the fight scenes. Although Keith David had been a trained boxer before he had never done like movie fight work so it was a good pairing i think overall and then we have uh, meg foster as holly thompson and that woman's eyes are like the most beautiful and also the most like piercing eyes in film like she's been in yeah. a few movies and, and when you see her eyes you're like man how do you like that she's almost got they're blue but they're almost like too bright like there's a color in them that you're just like wow like and it, the contrast of that with with her visual motif in the movie is pretty striking. Um, and she plays it really cool for the most of the movie. And then at the end when the betrayal happens, you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I didn't see that coming. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Uh, the other character, the other actor that's really uh, kind of interesting is, is George Buck Flower. He's the drifter guy that's like... See, when I first yes. saw you, I knew you boys were going to be friends with me. And, you know, and he's got a great quote. What's wrong with having it good for change? Now they're going to let us have it good. If we just help them, they're going to leave us alone. Let us make some money. You can have a little taste of that good life, too. Now I know you want it. Hell, everybody does. And then Frank's like, you do it to your own kind. And he's like, what's the threat? We all sell out every day. Might as well be on the winning team. That That's pretty much I see that every day. <laughs> yeah for sure like that is uh yeah i think that's beautiful at the end like seeing him like the fact that they could turn anybody um you know because it's almost like you you almost get the sense after you see that like maybe when the police were trying to capture nada in the beginning and all this other kind of stuff like maybe anyone who's who sees through this thing as long as you let them in on it they no longer make a fuss so it's like um it again just this other way to control people uh and as soon as you flash money at everyone it's like no one cares what's right or what's good anymore just as long as i'm getting mine who cares about anyone else so yeah i love that i love that scene in the tv studio where they confront him like that yeah well the crazy part is this movie's 30 plus years old now uh when carpenter wrote this it was his reaction to the Reagan years in office in America and the trickle down economics that, Oh, don't get in the richest way. They'll help everybody else. And John Carpenter didn't see that, see it that way at the time. John Carpenter himself was quite the retro futurist because uh, it's 2021 and it's worse than ever. As far as that goes, I mean, some notes I wrote on the themes, we got drones in the sky, conspiracies in our heads, militarized police in the streets, economic inequality in every corner, media that seeks to control our minds, like the subliminal meshing everywhere, pop-up ads, ads everywhere. You can't watch anything anywhere without ads everywhere or listen to anything without ads everywhere. It's just insane how much this movie predicted what the future was going to be like. He told uh, in, in an interview in 2015, he said, you have to understand something. It's a documentary. It's not science fiction, <laughs> which is kind of, <laughs> kind of sad. It's almost like uh, if you've seen Idiocracy, it's kind of almost at that level yeah. of how scary it predicted so many things going on. Yeah, that's what's wild. Like, because, um, yeah, you're right. Like at the time, it's like, OK, here's here's this kind of sci fi satire of what's happening right now. and then you watch it today and you're like, Oh look, we never uh, got out of this. <laughs> yeah. We're just kind of deeper in it. Yeah. RoboCop had a lot of that going on in it too, which we discussed oh, yeah. here on the podcast. Um, you know, it's just kind of crazy how the, the artists are always out there telling, showing things to everybody. Not everybody wants to listen or wants to pay attention to what's going on what are your 
What do you, do you have any f- other favorite quotes or lines from the movie that just always put a smile on your face or that you use maybe not in day-to-day life, but every once in a while somebody says something and you think of a quote from they live. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, uh, of course, you know, it has to go the, the bubblegum quote, like you uh, presented earlier, of course is great. Um, let's see. The other one is I always loved after, uh, Nada walks the streets, seeing all these signs and he goes into that grocery store. And before he has the confrontation with the woman who bumps into him, he sees the the news broadcast like for what it is. So he sees oh, man. The, yeah, it's such the, a great part. the guy is, uh, you know, an alien and that there's even the, the backdrop in the studio says obey and really, you know, big stark letters and stuff. Um, and. He 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 looks terrified as he's walking around the streets. And then here's where he kind of breaks down. Like you see this mental breakdown. He laughs and he says, it figures it would be something like this. Yeah. And like that line to me, I love because it sets forth of like, um, over time and especially like rewatching it now, like, uh, you've got this kind of, uh, admittance to like, things are really terrible for a lot of people. So it only makes sense that alien overlords are responsible because it's too horrifying to think that we actually do this to each other is <laughs> like how I take it now. But I know that that's line. yeah, a hundred percent. And that, that hurts. It's, it's kind of sad that that's, that's, that's where we're at as a species. We're going to take a quick commercial break so that you guys can hear some stuff going on with the ruminations radio network. Hey kids, it's Don Shanahan from the Cinephile Hissy Fit, one of the podcasts on the Ruminations Radio Network. If you've been enjoying this show, come listen to Will Johnson and I fight it out over cinema's best and worst on the Cinephile Hissy Fit. Find us and all the great shows over on RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the theme, the themes in the movie are strong. Uh, let's talk about, like, visually what are the striking things besides you you were talking earlier about the black and white contrast scenes when they're take taking on and off the sunglasses um one of the things that i love uh carpenter fell in love with on his second movie he discovered panavision uh anamorphic 35 and that's basically how he shoots everything and it has a very particular look and just the way he frames his shots he never like we never get a bunch of crazy jump cuts. We get a couple insert cuts when they're having the gunfights, and I think that's only just to speed up the process of showing the guy, maybe not showing so much violence on screen, right? And I think that's what they did that yeah, for at the yeah, time. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I actually think that makes it more visually interesting than if he actually showed them mowing all those guys down. That would actually get boring and repetitive. Um, one of the things that that frustrates me with a lot of modern movies is all of the insane amount of over storytelling over jump cutting over like crazy spinning camera lens flare add i don't even know how to explain it all sometimes i watch movies, some of the new movies and i'm like this is like i mean this is like a two-year-old projectile vomiting in the room like this isn't interesting anymore it's right. just like overkill carpenter is like a master of the subtle buildup of the shots he uses the nice pan i mean he went to film school at the height of film school usc like when he went to film school he got to learn from like people like hitchcock came and did lectures orson wells like it's kind of crazy to listen to the people he got to learn from howard hawks that he's definitely a huge howard hawks fan you can tell by how he sets up his shots and everything so i think it's just really interesting how visually he puts the story together and he does the cuts and he never he never rushes the viewer and he never rushes the story that's just like the pacing of the film and the shots are really well done and especially this movie i think they said it costs like four three or four million to make this movie in 1988 and its first weekend it made 20 million um he did more with that four million even if you for adjust for inflation that than most hollywood directors now could probably do i don't i don't know if anybody could make it like the way he did he was really creative with some of his ideas to uh, get those shots like the underground uh alien 
Stronghold is actually an uh, underground municipal city connection in Los Angeles. Like That's actually under the city there that connects a bunch of the city buildings. So they had some creative uh, ways of of doing that um, that you just don't see a lot in movies. Are there any impressive shots or any particular scenes that visually really impress you? Um, yeah, like I said, I love the the transition sunglasses stuff, but I also do think... Uh, there's a scene that I think has really cool lighting when they it's when they escape the police raid and he like rescues the young kid and they kind of hide out in this mm-hmm. uh, vacant yeah, house that, in it. Yeah, they've got. Yeah. Not a like looking through like boarded up slats and like the the lights from the police and the, the street lights and stuff are kind of coming through. And I, I, I've always really liked that shot. And it um it also feels like the the lighting and some of the other stuff in in the few times that these kind of uh everyman characters these street characters get into that high society whether it be holly's apartment or her house rather or that banquet dinner we see in the underground like it feels like it's a different world than the rest of the movie which i think um is is pretty cool in this very subtle way of like uh like as if, yeah, these rich elite, these power elite people like do live in a different place. Like they don't even understand what it's like for anyone else struggling or anything like that. So I think there's like some cool visual stuff going on with those scenes too. No. Yeah. And I actually, I don't think I ever really paid attention to that. Um, but you're right that the streets um, like with the homeless in Justiceville and like the construction site and even just the LA city streets are like real and they're gritty the lights aren't very bright and there's more shadows going around and people's heads are down and then like yeah holly's apartment's really brightly lit and just totally like all kinds of high contrast colors yeah when he stumbles when they're the aliens are having the meeting talking about the power elite and how they're doing better taking over the planet and how the humans have helped them it's like this massively lit up fancy ballroom with all the gold and bright yellow light everywhere yeah i I didn't really put the two and two together there one of the other shots i really like is when they're having it's when the aliens attack the resistance headquarters which is in this shanty like rundown downtown warehouse or something and uh the police are using flares and he uses these red flares to light this alleyway and it just is really cool but it's almost like an algorithm for like that's the way to hell or something because it's all red and frank and not yeah. are trapped until frank figures out how to push that button on the aliens teleporter watch and then that dumps them down into the cold stark alien underground place um i also really like the design of the aliens themselves how they kind of look like the only way to describe it's almost like if a human just sold their soul they're just like they're nothing but these eyes that consume and their faces are drained of any life they're kind of like skeletal looking i guess john carpenter's wife designed came up with that idea for the uh aliens yeah they're very uh very ghoulish right like almost like you're exactly right like somebody who has yeah lost something because of course that you resemble them as kind of human because it'd be different if they were like tentacled monsters or weird blob people or whatever but yeah they're close enough to us where it hits home right yeah definitely and then yeah the just the crazy amount of uh the scenes with the subliminal messaging that you were talking about where it goes black and white and they have those were all matte paintings like all of them and it's that was a different level of skill in hollywood that i don't think we really have anymore because like if they did that now, they would probably just use CG to create those. And I don't know why the matte paintings, they look like, I didn't know that until I was watching it with the commentary on. I was like, those are matte paintings. <laughs> Cause uh, yeah, they, I just, I just pretty seamless. That yeah. They're pretty seamless with the way they transition. Yeah. It's, it's quite an amazing, like again, for a three or $4 million film at that time. And then it was the number one film for about two weeks and then it fell off the charts um and it was a little bit of a comeback because big trump little china was kind of a failure um prince of darkness did pretty good but they live i think did really well and i think part of that had to do with the roddy roddy piper was at 
a pretty popular level in the uh, wrestling world at the time. And, uh, and also the movie's just a lot of fun. I, I enjoy the John Carpenter movies where he's kind of having fun with the characters. It's almost tongue in it has a strong theme, but it's almost tongue in cheek in a way. Um, it doesn't take itself too seriously, but it has a message that he's trying to, that he's either trying to let you know, or that he's saying, this is what I believe is going on. Um, it's one of the two. It, it wasn't yeah, that and, well. Uh, uh, oh, sorry about that. What we're like? No, no. I was just going to say, like, I think you're spot on. Like I keep, uh, I always default to these like heavy themes, right? I'm talking about all this stuff, but this movie is just tons of fun at its core. Like all of the, the goofy one-liners always get a chuckle out of me. Um, all that kind of stuff. Like it has the DNA of like what's fun about an eighties action movie. And then it has all this other stuff too, which I just think is a great combination. Yeah. And that's the other thing. Like um, one of the things that they did is even though it is an eighties action movie, these guys aren't like action heroes, like your typical eighties action heroes, like, Die Hard or Rambo or something like that. Like they get the crap beat out of them. I mean, the the hero doesn't even. Neither of the heroes. I'm going to air quote the heroes. Uh, make it through the end of the movie. Actually, none of the heroes make it through the end of the movie. If any, all the resistance is killed by the cops, and then Frank and Nada are dead by the end of the film. So none of the heroes make it through, but they do reveal to the rest of the world what's really been going on. Um. I mean, that's such a strong message. Uh, it's This is one of those movies that, like, if, if I run into somebody that's never seen it, I will do my darndest to try and get them to watch it. I'm like, you got to see this. You got to see this. Like, like, and sometimes it's a hard sell because they're like, that has a wrestler? Like, it's from the 80s? What are you talking about? Like, I don't know. Um, have, you ever, have you ever talked somebody into watching it or shown it to them and they just have no interest? I think... I don't know. I, I, I can't recall someone having no interest whatsoever. Usually I think I'm able to sell it on uh, a lot of times just on John Carpenter's other work in that it's in that it's just this ton of fun. Um, and, and that, yeah, if they want to, you know, um, see something that, cause it is kind of like, yeah, it was successful at the time and stuff, but I think it has this cult following, but it's under the radar in a lot of ways. Um, at the same time too, because I've certainly run into people who have no idea what it is or have never heard of it. Um, but yeah, I'm usually like, you need to watch this immediately. Mm-hmm. All right. And then, uh, yeah, I think, you know, growing up, uh, you had your, your dad and your older brother probably got you into Carpenter with me. It was, I grew up in the era where Carpenter was making like Halloween was a huge hit. I was too little to watch that at release, but you know, uh, I think Big Trouble in Little China might be the first John Carpenter movie, or maybe Christine. What year did Christine come out? Was that eighty? Was that after? I don't know. Big Trouble in Little China. No, I think it was before Big Trouble in Little China. But um, my mom was a huge uh, Stephen King fan, so I might have seen Christine eighty uh, three. That might have been the first oh, John go. Carpenter movie that I saw, and then followed by Big Trouble in Little China. Um, and then, you know, I would go back and forth and, and anytime I saw a movie at the store or on cable TV, if I was, you know, so back in the day, you're flipping through cable channels and you would see the movie. Sometimes I'd wait to see through the opening credits, see who directed it. If I saw John Carpenter, I would just park my butt down and watch it. <laughs> and it was usually a good time. Um, and it was because of, of, you know, things like they live big trouble, little China, the thing after I saw that. Um, you know, and then I went back and watched some of the older films, but they live, I feel like is, has such a good message in it about not being obsessed with who's on top, like consumerism that like more people need to be aware of it. And there was talk of them doing a remake of it. And I'm like, yeah, the only way I could see it working is if they almost do, this is one of the movies where I'd almost want a shot for shot remake but just sending it in now times or something i don't think that if they change too much of it it's not going to work i think that's part of what makes it work what about the uh, music he john carpenter scores most of his movies 
And like I was saying earlier, he got the the initial riff by watching Rowdy Rider Piper's walk, and it's kind of more of a bluesy score than he normally does. Like he's always been composing electronically, right? And then this one, as the instruments, electronic instruments have gotten better, he's improved the technique. But this one is more of a blues based riff, and he's even got like almost like a little harmonica in there too. What'd you think about the yeah. score? I uh I, I love this one. I, I'm a huge fan of uh Carpenter's scores. Um and yeah, this one I, I agree with you hundred percent. Like the that kind of bluesy angle I think works really well for um you know the main characters he's got going on and things like that. And yeah, just a, a quick kind of uh side note. I was lucky enough to see Carpenter in concert in twenty sixteen in which he was playing all of his uh like movie the main themes of movie stuff and some original stuff but when they did the main theme from they live they all stopped put on sunglasses (laughs) that's awesome that (laughs) is awesome that's so funny because i was gonna that was my next question to to, i was gonna ask you uh, i remembered you mentioning you got to see the tour and i was gonna ask you how that went i wish i could have seen it but uh what are some of the highlights from other highlights from when you saw the the live? It was him and his son and his godson, right? He's got like a whole little like family troupe and some other people playing with him. Yeah, exactly. And they, they did. Uh, it was pretty cool. They they played at uh, Thalia Hall, which is this tiny venue in uh, the city of Chicago. Um, so we went there. We did. Uh, they were doing interviews before and after the show for a I think there's a very limited release of a Blu-ray. Uh, actually that you can track down of some of the performances um but it was cool they they did all the main theme songs from basically his whole uh career during the songs they had a big like projector screen with like highlight reels of that movie um and he also did some of the original stuff that he's written since then he's done like three albums over the last like five or six years but the big thing that felt really good about seeing carpenter in concert um was how much fun he appeared to be having like (laughs) like being almost like the front man of this band uh you could just kind of tell the energy of the room from him and his son and everybody else was just like they were having tons of fun up there doing this um which kind of translated throughout the whole show so yeah it was it was a great time probably one of the coolest shows i've ever been to that's awesome yeah hopefully maybe He's getting up there in years, but maybe he does something like that again. I will definitely try to go see it. Um, that's when I'd be tempted to pay for the backstage thing because I didn't realize it until oh, yeah. recently how much I really enjoy like almost all of his movies, even his movies that are not as popular with the critics. I find fascinating with certain bits, not all of them, but and we'll get into some of those later. But he's just he's like a such a craftsman but not like popular not not well known he doesn't stand out uh but there's a certain aspect to his movies that i just gravitate towards and especially they live the message that they live really just hits hard um and some like you when i first saw it you know and as i rewatched it through high school i went through some bad times i became quite the rebel I was against the system. That was like my theme, that movie, that was my message. Like that was all I was against for a long time. And, uh, it stayed with me all this time. I I remember when the Blu-ray finally came out cause I had on VHS and then I bought it on DVD and I went to one of the local places that sells Blu-rays and DVDs and CDs and whatnot. And it was the day that they live came out on Blu-ray. I didn't even know because I had kind of just not been paying attention and I saw it in a new release and I freaked out and grabbed it right there. I was like, Oh my God, I went home, watched it right away. (laughs) That was in 2015. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's one of my all time favorites. Cool, man. Well, you got any other memories about they live that you want to share? No, I mean, just that. uh, Yeah. I think, I think anybody who, hasn't seen it if they've somehow uh made it through the spoilers uh i would still watch it like it's still if you haven't seen it in forever watch it again like the themes are on point still for today and it's still just a lot of fun if you want a sci-fi kind of action movie too so yeah agreed and and the one of the things that that i've noticed is with a lot of his movies he never runs the movie too long 
the story is tight and to the point and the pacing solid. There's not any wasted moments. You don't feel like, cause a lot, there's been some modern movies I watched recently. And I was like, dude, there's like 45 minutes of slow-mo shots. You could have taken the fuck out of this movie. There's none of that <laughs> in this movie. The there's movie. not, there's not any wasted shots in this movie. Like you will never feel like, Oh, that didn't shot need to be there. No, every shot in this movie is there for a reason. And it all leads up to that third act and it just really works well. And that's, I mean, that's almost all of his movies are that way. I feel like, but out of them, I feel like they live has one of the tightest paced uh, films without any waste in it. It's definitely one of his best from that era and probably might even be the last truly great John Carpenter movie. I might get shot for that, but, um, <laughs> but I, it, it, it just does something for me that, that not many other films do. All right, Warlock. Well, hell man, this has been awesome. I can't wait to have you on here again. Cause we're going to be talking about some other John Carpenter movies at some point soon. But, uh, I really wanted to talk about they live since you and I both shared quite a bit of love for the film. You got any last words for the, audience of retro futures culture and ruminations radio network um yeah just want to thank you for having me on it's been a blast and uh yeah to the audience if anybody weird in the street wants you to put on glasses just do it just see what they want you to see (laughs) remember obey marry and reproduce this is your god no independent thought stay asleep championship week you're trying to set your lineup and you don't know what to do robert griffin the fourth and his top target will fuller the sixth have carried you all season but they're facing a london jaguars team that has the top defense in the league your other quarterback is a 66 year old tom brady who's playing against the much more manageable toronto Bengals. So you turn to Nick and Elijah of the 25 Yards Later podcast, a production of Sports Obsessive and Ruminations Radio Network. Be a champion. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.